Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and mental well-being and to encourage community. And I say encourage community because I believe very deeply that human beings are friendly tribal animals. We like to cooperate. We like to hang out with one another. From sewing circles, to playing poker, to playing golf, to going to sports games, and we really love eating together. We like being together. That's how human beings are. You can witness that all around the world. But at the very same time, we must acknowledge that there's a very small percentage of us who are very different. These people are not collaborative and cooperative. They are avaricious predators who would have us be subjects rather than citizens. These are the kind of people who believe in dictatorships with themselves at the very top and everyone else below them. I've grown up most of my life, particularly when I was younger, believing that our democracy and our republic was, was an entitlement. It was something we won over 200 years ago and it was ours to keep forever. But I've learned that isn't the case. A democracy and a republic must be worked for on a regular basis, and it's our duty as citizens, it really is, to stay aware and stay politically awake and to vote. It's our job. And I know I'm saying that at a time when it's hard for many people to even get food on the table and pay rent, let alone look out for their politics. But it's something that must be done. It simply must be done, or we could lose the democracy and the republic. In the words of my hero, or one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Please join me in that vigilance. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I have the extreme pleasure of having with me Dr. Thomas Roberts. I can hardly tell you how excited I am to have him here. In the 50 years that I've been, or 50 plus years, that I've been what's called a drug warrior, what does that mean? It means somebody who is fighting for the constitutional rights of every American to ingest what they want to ingest in the privacy of their homes. And Thomas, Dr. Thomas Roberts has been a pioneer in that struggle. He taught the very first course in the United States on psychedelic studies to be listed in a university catalog. He also started Bicycle Day, which is a memorial to Albert Hoffman, the, 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 the creator, if you will, or the discoverer of LSD. Since 1994, Thomas has kept a private psychedelic email list, which I am thrilled to be on because I get a lot of stuff in my email and a lot of it is junk and I erase right away and then I have to go through what's left to prioritize. But I'm telling you, I look for Thomas Roberts' email because he has major material to share with me about psychedelics on a regular basis. He has numerous books and publications. Please go to Amazon, look up Thomas Roberts, Dr. Thomas Roberts, and you'll see his books. You want them in your library. The latest one is called Mind Apps. 
if I keep going on, I go on for the rest of the whole program about his bio because that's how much of a contribution he's made. So I'll stop there and I'll leave the rest for you all to look him up on Google. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and uh, Politics, Thomas. Thank you, Dr. Miller. Thank you for those nice words. I appreciate it. Oh, I appre- I'm a major fan of yours. I'd like to, I'd like to pick up on, on what you said about politics. Um, and, and I only have two half bits of notification. There's a new book out whose author's n- name is H-A-A-S-S, Haas. Two A's, two S's, H-A-A-S. And the title is Something and Obligation. And it's about the obligations of citizens- citizenship and how to develop a civic personality. And my guess that he'd be a really great person for you to interview. Oh, thank you so much. H-A-A-S-S. Yes. The Obligations of Citizenship. Thank you for that referral. I will definitely contact him. Yeah, I'm eager to hear him. Thomas, we're going to be talking primarily today about end-of-life healing with psychedelics, because I know that's an interest of yours. But prior to that, tell us how you came to get involved with psychedelic studies 50 years ago. How, how the hell did you have the courage to go into it when it could have killed your academic career right on the spot? <laughs> well, um, I just sort of wandered into it. Um, I was not a hippie at all. Um, I was a graduate student at the University of Connecticut when Timothy Leary was having all his troubles. And I, and I was curious about what was going on. So I wrote for a copy of the journal at Harvard that had an article by him. I read it. That wasn't for me. I was just interested in higher education. And then um, in the summer of 1967, I drove to Stanford to start a doctoral program. And that was one of that was the summer of love. And I wasn't going to San Francisco for the summer of love. I was going to get a doctorate. But I had a lot of fun listening on the car radio. That was the year when you go to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers and your hair was playing. So I could sort of pretend that was for me. And then at Stanford, I was doing a doctorate on Abraham Maslow's needs hierarchy. And Willis Harmon had a class, and he had studied Maslow. And I wanted to take a class with him. But the class wasn't about Maslow, but I wanted to get to know Harmon. It was called The Human Potential. And it was a graduate special course, open only to advanced graduate students. And so I tried to sign up for it. I had to wait two semesters, two quarters to get in. Finally, I did. And um, I wasn't interested in psychedelics at all this time. All right, I was into humanistic psychology and Maslow. But at the at the course, it was a once-a-week seminar of probably about 20 or 25 people. There was a graduate student couple, and they started talking about their first experience of psychedelics that weekend, flowers on the table moving, and, and all those things one sees and thinks about. This is the first time I had heard anybody talk about their own psychedelic experience. And much, much to my surprise and shock, I'd say three-quarters of the students in this advanced seminar, a very selective group, um, started to talk about it, understood what the couple was talking about, and started to talk about their own psychedelic experiences. Now, now I was expecting people who take drugs, terrible drug addicts, you know, to have a very, you know, scraggy-looking faces and not being very bright and and probably septic psychologically and physically. And here were advanced doctoral students at Stanford in an advanced seminar. And that really hit me with, with a, a surprise. Um, but, oh, okay, you know, that's okay. I could go with that. And by very good luck, there was someone else in the class. He was a reporter from a newspaper in uh, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, 
who had a ticket for a talk. Esalen Institute had a wonderful uh, series of events on weekends called Esalen at Stanford. And they would bring up the Esalen people to give presentations at Stanford, and people could sign up for those. Um, I hadn't signed up, but uh, he, he gave me his ticket. He couldn't go. And I wanted to hear this guy. I had no idea who he was. And I figured, well, if it's interesting, I'll stay. And if it isn't interesting, I'll leave. That's okay. So, so I got into a wonderful lecture about East-West psychology and psychedelics with Alan Watts. And it just blew me away. Here was this brilliant, witty, erudite British scholar talking about psychedelics and religion. And, and that just, and there was another jolt. So at that, at that point, I started to realize, oh, this, this could be really inter- interesting. But I did, kind of didn't do much for a while. Of course, being in the Bay Area, there's a certain amount of psychedelia in the air. And um, I had my first um, experience with psychedelics in February of 1970 up at Lake Tahoe. And um, it was a beautiful wintry day there. And um, I had an experience that really has uh, directed me intellectually and personally for the rest of my life because I was there was something very intriguing. There was a sense of portent. Something important has happened or is happening or is about to happen. And that really interested me. And then starting that fall, 1970, I started working at Northern Illinois University, teaching um, educational psychology in the College of Education. And from then on, you know, had uh, numerous trips, started reading in the field. And by absolutely good luck, I happened to be invited to a, a conference in Iceland in 1972. And it was Stan Groff and Walter Clark and Bill Richards and um, oh, several other people whose names um, certainly at the time talking about psychedelics. And here was this, well, Joseph Campbell was one of them. He gave a talk there that I've never seen better talk anywhere. He showed me how good a talk could be. And he had the wonderful feeling that when you were listening to him, there was nothing he'd rather be doing there than be right there at that time talking to you. I mean, that was, it was a gift that people would hear him. And so I realized once you get, oh, Houston Smith was there too. So um, I realized this is an area one could get into intellectually, that there really were some ideas in this field. And that sort of started my intellectual work. And from then on, it's been reading and meeting people and writing, and et cetera. It was, did you say that occurred in Iceland? Yes, Bifrost, B-I-F-R-O-S-T, Iceland. It's a, it's a, a secondary school in Iceland. Because of the weather, the, the children often live there during the day. And during the summer, they make it a, sort of into a, well, a tourist uh, event place. Yes, in north, northwestern Iceland. But somehow, way back then, 50 years ago, they managed to gather together these people who would all become luminaries in yes. the intellectual sphere of psychedelic studies. Yes, it was astounding. I had no idea who these people were. I, I saw the name Stanislav Grof, and I thought it must have been one of the Europeans. You know, his name sounded like it. And um, I, I asked somebody who Houston Smith was, and the person told me, oh, he's written a book on religion. And he'd get in to see the Pope and the Dalai Lama and met some other people whose names I didn't understand anytime he wants. And have somebody, enter, you know, introduced to you that way is really a little overwhelming. And yes, um, well, it was a, a man in Iceland, Gary Vilhelmsen, who organized the meeting. And of course, it was a perfect meeting between Europe and the United States, or North America, rather, because of the Canadians, too. Yeah. So Indeed. that was a, a, just a good bit of luck. Yes, there's a lot to be said for luck. I've, <laughs> I've had my share of it, <laughs> good and bad, but luck is luck. So, if I, if I could have one trait, I'd, love to, I'd like to be lucky. Yes, indeed. 
And I have been. So you've come a long way in this 50 years, as have we both. And now we're seeing what's being referred to as a renaissance, a new interest, a new life for psychedelics and in the United States and around the, around the world. Are you optimistic about this renaissance? My view is the renaissance is just beginning and it has a long past in front of it. When um, Bill Hesessa, um, 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 that's not his used the word renaissance, he was referring to it in psychiatry. And in his book, he talks about the renaissance in psychiatry. And my, my background is in liberal arts. And so when I hear renaissance, you know, I think about culture and religion and so forth. Um, and so but I think we're on the first and beginning of second of four stages. The first stage is psychotherapy and the neurosciences. And that's where we are now. And by stage, I mean, this is where most of the activity and the money and the printing and the, and the action, action goes on. But what happens, as you know, is when people do psychedelic psychotherapy, it's often a mystical experience, it's psychotherapeutic. And so this moves us over to the second stage, that called the entheogen stage. By the way, I use the word entheogen only for the religious spiritual uses of psychedelics. I do not use it as a synonym for psychedelic. So we're now beginning to get the, the, the second stage going. And there are several groups that are forming now who are looking at the uses of psychedelics in religious ceremonies. There have been some sort of underground churches and ayahuasca churches, but we're beginning now to tap into the a central religion area. So I'm using a lot of my, my attention in that area. But when one starts to look at um, the sacredness and religious experience, it's sort of siblings come up. And this is really, what's the nature of truth, reality, goodness, sense of I, all those things start to come on when you start to look at sacredness. And that moves us then up to the bipolar third stage. And I coined this word ideogen meaning that psychedelics generate ideas for that stage. So that's the humanistic stage, humanistic in the sense of humanities, or ideogen stage. And that's where we start using psychedelics in uh, scholarly, intellectual ways. And then the final thing is, when we, as we start to do that, people start to get into other cultures and say, well, besides psychedelics, are there other ways of improving or activating our minds? Um, and I, of course, there are all these different types of meditation, breathing techniques, yoga, the martial arts, um, brain stimulation techniques, on and on and on. So what I'm trying to do is to get people to look at psychedelics and all these other techniques as part of one larger whole of how to improve our minds. And I invented the little concept called Mind App. And just as we can install apps on our devices and they can become more powerful and do new things, we can install mind apps in our brain-mind complex um, in order to induce different things with our brain-mind complex. So that's that's the big idea I'm working at behind all this all, is to have a much broader view of psychedelics, meditation, yoga, breathing techniques, and so forth. So now, the really intriguing thing about that is what happens when you put things together in different combinations that haven't been tried yet? We can produce brain-mind complexes that have never been experienced before. Let's say magnetic brain stimulation, LSD and and breath of fire. We would produce a mind body state that's, that's never been produced before by combining those three mind apps. And of course, the number of, of recipes is infinite. Yes. So, so that's that's how I'm looking at the, at the psychedelic renaissance. As we're off to a good start, we've got a long, long way to go. 
Do you think that uh, what you're talking about, these mind apps, is that related in some way to what Musk is talking about with Neuralink? I don't know. I, I don't know. Probably. Okay. I think it is. I, I think I think he's looking at, at the transfer of data from our minds to computers and back and forth. Uh, it's something you might check out. Oh, well, I think that I would say that sounds to me not knowing anything about it as a possible mind app. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to share a little, uh, a little something with you and get your opinion on it. But this is something that's been on my mind for several years now, Thomas. If, if I cut the, if you cut the back of your hand, let's say there's something sharp around the house and you walk by and, and it slices sure. open your hand right there. Oh yeah. You know, a couple of inches, right? You have the expectation that over the next few days, that uh, wound is going to heal. It's going to do what we call scab over, and and then the scab eventually is going to fall off, and the skin is reunited, the cells are together, and you have healed. Now, we both know that you, Thomas Roberts, you did that healing. I didn't do it. Nobody else did it. It was all you that did it. But I, th I think it's fair to say, correct me if I'm mistaken, that you don't know exactly how you did that. It was what you might call automatic. It was not of your volition, correct? Oh, yes. And that's true for all of us. And I'm just using the example of a wound on the hand as an example. There are so many others of things that we ourselves heal, but we're not aware of how we went about doing it. My question I'm raising for you and for myself and for our colleagues is, might psychedelics be a tool that we could use to focus the mind in order to take control of that healing process to begin with that happened on the back of the hand? Uh, yes, I, I've got two, two, two sort of takes on that situation. First of all, um, when we're doing medical research, you know, there's something called placebo that is chosen because it doesn't work. And um, a, a control group is given a placebo. So you find out how much of this is, is automatic and how much is actually from the drug or the other treatment. Now, the fact that um, people have what we call a placebo response is illogical because a placebo is chosen because it doesn't affect the, tre the treatment. And yet it, the treatment happens and we, saw, we call it a placebo effect. So we're giving an effect of something that's chosen for no, for no effect. There's a logical problem in there somewhere. Correct, now, yes. Now, now, but the healing still takes place. And that, that's the interesting phenomenon. Why does, why, why does that, that happen? And I think instead of calling it the placebo effect and attributing the results to something that's chosen, it obviously can't have an effect, we call it the placebo ability. That is, you and I, and we all have this natural, these natural human abilities to heal ourselves. And um, the placebo ability seems to be more intense in some states of mind than in others. So the question I'm having then is, well, since we have this ability, um, can it be stronger in other mind-body states than it is in our order state, others in our ordinary state? And I've looked at the research on this, and there there is a, a pretty strong relationship between other mind-body states and the placebo ability. Um, a, a very good example of this is um, through um, a measurement of infections, and that they find that can make people feel good, health happy in a wholesome way, but if the world if the world is going along and relationships are going well and the world is going well, they'll uh, heal much better than if the relationships are poor and they're having a problem with work. In other words, persons 
emotional uh, state is one of the inputs into this uh, placebo ability. So, and the people who are who are more happy have a stronger placebo ability. Now, let's take a look at this happiness. One of the things that happens with psychedelics is extreme happiness, happiness, grace that people have never felt before. So, if the placebo ability is is intensified by um, a, a positive emotional feeling, and psychedelics provide the strongest emotional feeling people have ever felt, does this boost the placebo ability? Now, it may or may not, because there may be, you know, a floor on or a ceiling on this. We simply don't know. But, but you know, I think we ought to look at the relationship of psychedelics from boosting the natural uh, healing uh, ability. And now, an angle of that is uh, the vagus nerves. These are nerves that, that come out of the brain and go down and, and uh, connect with our guts and glands. And you can either think, you can either say they arise out of the brain and they're sort of like the hands of the brain that go down and touch our guts and glands, or you can say they plug into the brain. But either way, they they are connected with the brain. Now, uh, also, um, they send information from our guts and glands back up to our brains too. It's a two-way um, street of correspondence. And so, I'm wondering if we could find out these areas, and I'm sure this is known in terms with, the, with the brain people, where the um, vagus nerves uh, arise, could we uh, activate those with psychedelics or meditation or uh, or any other technique? And would this help us um, be more aware of and be healthier in the connections between our body and brain? This is, this is that the mind-brain technique, you know, right there in the vagus nerve. So I think this is a, if I were... Uh, if I had a lot of money and I could fund something in psychedelics, I would ask somebody to look at the effect of psychedelics and these other mind-body techniques on the vagus nerve to see if we could really learn to be healthier that way. Uh, I suppose we can, you know. We can use our brain to do all kinds of things. Why not boost the placebo ability? I will definitely be spreading the word about your idea of research on the uh, psychedelic effects on vagus nerve connections. I think it's fascinating, and it's definitely worth looking into. It, a piece of doctoral research, perhaps, for somebody, or maybe yes. more maybe more advanced than that. Definitely not for me. I, I don't have the ability to do it. Right. What, I, what I'm trying to do with my own personal research, and I mean very personal, is I'm attempting with the use of psychedelics to focus my mind in ways that I've never focused it before in order to see if there's some way internally I can get in touch with that healing process. It's a, it's a, a very interesting search because, you know, you're searching on the inside, moving things around that you don't really know what you're doing, but just doing a lot, you know, it's sort of similar, Thomas, to when I've been ser- very seriously injured, which I have in my life, and I used visual imagery to heal the broken bones. Mm-hmm. I really had no way of knowing whether the visual imagery was healing the bones, not healing the bones, or even helping. But it was a positive move, an attempt, with no negative side effects. And since I had plenty of time laying around in the hospital, you know, I could dedicate hours of it every day. Uh, no way of knowing with an N of one, you know, etc., whether I did any good or not. 
but uh, but it was it was in, enjoyable and it passed the time in the hospital and i've tried to use it in other ways as well you remember back in the 70s was it or 80s these folks in texas i think their name was harrington or carrington symington symington thank you so yeah. much the symingtons did that work on visual yeah. imagery and cancer yeah but then later on it turned out that somebody tried to replicate their research and had a tough time as i recall they should replicate it uh, let's say with um hypnosis or meditation or you know co combine it with some other mind-body technique and see if that will intensify it right so let's let's switch the topic now thomas and talk about the place of psychedelics in end-of-life healing okay my view um is that we're confusing and conflating death with with a mystical experience and we misunderstand death um, because of mystical experience. Let me tell you how I figure that out. There are a number of parallels between a mystical experience, apparently, and death. Ego um, loss is one of them, ego transcendence. So I think that when people have had mystical experiences, um, they have taken those experiences and transferred them into talking about death. Of course, ego death is on it. For example, during a uh, psychedelic experience, one may um, temporarily, you know, let go of one ego. The ego, in a sense, in a sense, dies. Okay, and then the person has experience afterwards, when either during the experience or when they come back into the ordinary life. Now, we misinterpret that by thinking the person was dead and had an experience um, past death, and then brought that experience back into the ordinary state. Well, the person wasn't actually dead. The person was having a mystical experience. But we've confused the ego death with physical death. And we've taken the characteristics of ego death and applied them to physical death. So I think that um, the idea, let's say, of heaven and hell. Well, we know in psychedelics one can have a, a, a graceful, I mean, grace in the, in the religious sense, a graceful religious experience that's sacred, or can be a, have a hellish experience. Now, I think people having those experiences, bringing them back, thought those were past physical death experiences. Instead, they are past ego death experiences. And we confuse ego death with physical death that way. And so that we, we have largely, in our culture and in some religions, confused ego death during a mystical experience with physical death. And we have talked about physical death using the vocabulary of mystical experience and ego death. So I think we made a big mistake there. And it's a very understandable kind of mistake. I mean, once someone has had a mystical experience and feels, quote, dead, transferred into a larger world or a better world or without contact, you know, a sense of unity. And one can very easily imagine thinking of that um, uh, a, an example of, um, of heaven. So I think that's an error we've made. And we're, we're, just we're just conflating those two very different ideas. I want to validate something you just said, because I've experienced the ego death that you're talking about. And the scary part was at the second I let go. Because when I let go, that's when I knew I was, it felt like I was going to die. It literally felt like I was going to die. Yes. But there was some voice of wisdom in me that said, if you're going to die, you're going to die. You're not, you're not. Whatever it is, just let go and let it happen. Mm -hmm. So I let go and I let it happen. The first time I've done it more than once. 
and I let go and let it happen. And then lo and behold, I was still something <laughs> that yeah, because I was still a consciousness. And but I was a consciousness, as you said before, sort of a unified consciousness with everything else in the universe. But I was not a consciousness with a body. I had no awareness of my body at that time. And my eyes were closed the entire time. So I really had no awareness of the room or the context of any material bodies in the world. It was as though I was a electromagnetic light source being in some way. I sort of identify with the Alex Gray paintings where he paints us mm -hmm. as looking like electrified, you know, beings. You've seen those. Yeah. And you're correct in that after that experience, it changed my view of death because prior to that, I always thought that death was going to sleep without dreaming and that was the end. Yeah, that's all you had. But once I had that experience of feeling like I was dying and then I was a consciousness, I sort of jumped to open the possibility that when I physically die, I will still have a consciousness. And that's what you're talking about, making the connection between the two, isn't it? Yes, it is. Now, um, I take that position too, but I realize I might be wrong as I might not be consciousness either after physical death. But nobody yeah. has come back to, to tell us that. <laughs> I'd, I, like to, I'd like to be the experiment. It would be the end of one, but there'd be no data. <laughs> well, I've come close. I've come, cl I've come close, Thomas. I'll tell you a, a time when I came close. Yeah. I, um, when, I, when I was 35 years ago, roughly, I, ha I was on a motorcycle and I had a head-on collision Ooh. with a Winnebago recreational vehicle. Wow. And it ran over me and crushed both of my legs. And when I was laying there on the a highway with my eyes closed and using my breathing, because I'm a great breather, I practiced that since I went to Esalen in the, in the 60s, I learned how to breathe. Oh. And, and so I was using the breathing to keep myself from going into shock. And I saw myself literally drifting away into the universe. Oh. And I could actually see myself drifting, and it felt as though... I was leaving my body, and as I was leaving my body, all the pain in my body from having my legs crushed completely disappeared. And I, so I was having that sort of experience we just described of being a being without a material body. Mm -hmm. And I saw myself going way out into the universe, and then I saw a picture of myself sitting in a wheelchair with a blanket over my legs and me meeting with a patient in my office. And I heard and I heard a voice from out of this great darkness in the universe say to me in a very deep voice, you can still make a contribution. Oh. And when I heard that voice that I could still make a contribution, everything went in reverse. And I saw myself coming back from the great darkness roll the way back into my body and then i opened up my eyes and i was laying there on the tar on on the highway and i said to somebody stay over me you know get me a helicopter i i think i'm gonna make it wow yeah. wow yes that that's an amazing experience then you know the nice thing is you could remember it you know? oh i can i can remember it uh, 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 like it as if it happened yesterday 
and I've never done anything to blot it out. The only thing I did to change it, uh, Thomas, was that after I got out of the wheelchair, which I was told I'd be in for the rest of my life, I strapped my crutches on another motorcycle that I had, and I went back to the original place where it happened, and I did the turn over and over again perfectly in order to create some balance to the trauma of going around that turn in my mind and, and getting run over. Wow. I, I just felt I just felt it was important to, to get it right since yeah. I had since I had obviously gotten it wrong. Did you have a sense of facing your fears doing that? That's ex- that that I was looking to face any residual trauma and fear that was inside of me by doing that exactly right because I was deeply concerned about what we all know about, which is you get a trauma in there and it's a gift that gives uh, keeps on giving. You know, you don't know where in your life. You're going to be inhibited because you've got that fear going that something bad's going to happen. So I felt I, I needed some way to uh, to to heal and eradicate that that something bad catastrophe. Has has overcoming that fear persisted in your life now, so you have less fear? I've spent a lot of time using psychedelics, particularly searching the inner crevices of my soul yeah. for fe- for fear, because I believe that fear is 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 antithetical to good health both yeah. physically and mentally mm-hmm. and so i've done everything i can to search out fear to face fear to expose myself to my own fears to do whatever i can in order not to walk around in life with the damocles sword of fear over my neck i've lived that way i know what it's like to have that and 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 i didn't want to have it anymore and so uh, both it came out in this experience by the time I was 50. Of course, I'd had plenty of practice searching for fear. So when the accident happened, I just used that. It was just another place where now I've got to deal with the fear of, of getting hurt again in, in an accident, in a motorcycle, in a car. I didn't want to get phobic. It was such a big accident. I was concerned that it could have far-reaching implications. Yes, yeah, and, and probably your, your ability to go out of your body and come back helped you trans transcend bodily fear i think that psychedelic experience of going out of my body and coming back stood me in good stead at that time because when i was laying there and i saw myself leaving that didn't scare me it was just it was just another experience you know i've wondered about robert monroe's out of the body work Uh uh-huh you know you know that book i'm not i don't know what to make of that now is was your experience sort of along those lines you know, I've never talked to him directly, and I think I'd need to in order to really get a sense of that. Is he still alive? I was going to ask you the same question, because I remember reading his book um, in graduate school, and the, the book was well established at that time. Journeys Out of the Body, I think, was the right name for it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But there must be other people um, looking at that now, too. But there, there are people studying the near-death experience. So part of what you're saying is that we have conflated ego death with whatever death is. Yes. Right? Yes. In both but, cases... In, in, when the, when, let's say uh, when a holy book, say the Bible talks about death, are they talking about bodily death or are they talking about ego death? And uh-huh. when you use that as an interpretive framework, a lot of things start to make sense that otherwise don't. Uh-huh. I wonder, in terms of connecting these, what we're talking about, to spirituality and particularly to religion, 
to what extent this great fear of death that seems to be prevalent in our culture for sure is a function of the fact that the religions have sold people on a certain kind of afterlife and some of it is a very unpleasant place to go that's been called hell for example and since everybody knows that they've done some sins in their life that could easily result in untold numbers of people being afraid of dying because they think they're going to go to hell for their sins yes i I agree with that um i don't think um the control the let's say church control over people is intentional i think it's i think it's because they deluded themselves into that way of looking at things and therefore they they they're not saying let's manipulate these people and get them to give money to us um because we'll clear we'll scare them with a story i mean they think the story is true and that they're relaying truth to people i don't think it's an intentional attempt to rip off people i think it's just an error in, in the way they're thinking about things well part of it is in our old friend McLuhan's words the medium is the message mm. if they tell people that there's an afterlife and there's a good place and a bad place and they follow it with if you do the rules follow the rules we tell you you'll go to the good place that sort of de facto is putting in a threat and a fear isn't it yes it is i don't i don't think it's intentional i think it's an error that the that, that the churches are the leaders are making you mean they didn't think through the fact that when they present this concept of heaven and hell and heaven if you do good things to realize that they're going to be scaring the bejeebas out of people because so few of us are perfect enough to go to heaven yes that, that's my interpretation of uh, i'm giving the churches the benefit of the doubt on this case and saying they're they're mistake they're mistaken in their beliefs and have passed it on with the best of intentions by the way they're, they're not saying oh, let's scare the hell out of these people get them can give them a lot of, uh, of, of money to the church and get a lot of power i think that's the undesirable side effect or un, no, un, un, unintentional side effect mm-hmm. well that's very generous of you and given that i think we're all better off when we presume innocence than presume negativity yeah you're you're on the right path again tell us some more about your thoughts about the place of psychedelics in end of life healing um well um uh, the the work of tony bosis who you've interviewed on this um is the best example that i know of using um psychedelics in a palliative care situation um to uh, people who are afraid of death let's say because they've been um said there's a, a fear of hell well I, I think well that's one of the squares there's another another fear that is more basic is i think our sense of self or ego doesn't want to give up control is afraid of death because it means no more me or i won't be in control anymore or what's going to happen to me so i'll, I'll take a actually a Freudian view on this one say that the ego wants to be in charge and feel it needs to be in charge because there, there are all these scary things that might happen so i've got to use my i've got to use my ego to make me into the type of person where good things will happen to bad things won't happen to and that um but what i do want to do is uh, have used this strong ego we know about the ego defense me- mechanisms so i think the ego defense mechanisms are activated when the ego is threatened now you know with a psychedelic egoless experience or with death or with uh being knocked on the head or whatever it is is that this is the ego trying to defend itself and that itself is fearful and felt as fear because of all those bad things 
in us, things we've done or things we might imagine yeah. or, the, or whoever, or whatever. So I think that that's, that's, that's the way I find uh, useful to look about, think about it that way. And it, it, it appears as though we're getting good results but with psilocybin, yeah. working with people, you're aware of that, working mm. with people who, who are in transitions. Yes, I think there should be a Nobel Prize that would be given a share between Stan Groff, Starley Grove, Charlie Grove, and George Griffith. I mean, um, Ren- Roland Griffiths? Roland Griffiths, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I think they have done much for human um, health, as uh, much as the pe- people working, let's say, on CRISPR or new directions in biology. I think this is just a, this is an amazing redirection of what, uh, a new direction in health, the mental health direction brought about by psychedelics. And of course, psychedelics allow us to plug in all those other things like breathing techniques and meditation, make sense out of them. They're not just something that those kind of unfortunate people o- over there somewhere are doing. And this is an interesting thing because we're getting, we're, we're going to in a global, not just global trade of cars and lithium and, and iron, but of ideas and, and of mind apps, like all the stuff that's come in from Asia. These are mind apps that have come in. And now Ibogaine from Africa. And so there's this international trade in mind apps, as well as in uh, goods and services. And what do you think the reason is that psilocybin is leading the way rather than LSD, since we knew more about LSD in the past than we knew about psilocybin. But if, if you look at them as two stocks on the stock market, psilocybin's pulling away and, and, and LSD is lingering. And yet LSD, you and I both know, have you, has huge potential. Well, LSD has such a bad reputation. Because was, of what happened in the 60s, the whole counterculture issue? Yes. Yes, for the the, the the political press um, and the industry really gave it as bad a name as they possibly could because it was very dramatic. I worked briefly as a newspaper reporter, and I know you want to make things interesting and dramatic and and, and frightful, and um, that's exactly what's happened. Now, um, I don't think that was, again, entirely done in, in, um, intentionally, although some of it clearly was. I, the, what uh, Ehrlichman said is that they were able to use fear of drugs as a way of keeping the blacks down and keeping the hippies from voting. Right. So I think it was very intentional in that tank sense. But I think uh, most of it was just done out of plain ordinary fear. And of course, if people are naturally afraid of losing their egos, it's a uh, fear, then anything that promises to make you lose your ego is frightening, right? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, what will happen? I mean, you know, what bad things will come out of your mind? You know, what awful things will you do and so forth? And so I, I think that it was a very logical thing to have happened. Unfortunate, but we're still um, in the shadow of that period. So psilocybin, which basically is, is you, and I'm, well, I'm oversimplifying, but it's sort of a LSD where you have to take more to make it work. Uh, basically, that that's that's it. Um, and so psilocybin um, was socially acceptable. And also, you know, working in the university, I know that all research has to improve by an institutional review board. <laughs> and imagine going to the institutional review board of people who would learn everything about LSD from the press and politicians. And you say you want to do some practice and research in LSD. Well, this is going to give a hell of a bad reputation to the university as a whole and bring in, you know, legislators and the press and people outside, um, you know, raising a ruckus. And so um, you do something 
something people don't know with the psilocybin, and it's hard to pronounce and spell. I, I think that's part of the funny little difference. About yes. It. You know, I think what you're saying is true about ayahuasca as well, because ayahuasca is a much bigger experience in some ways than psilocybin, and yet it's, much, it's, it's gaining ground and traveling around the country. It's a yeah. huge experience, but it's something that comes out of the jungle, and it doesn't have any bad reputation from the 60s. No, that's right. Yes. Yeah. And you wonder what other plants are out there that we don't know about yet. And of course, there are all the, the chemical um, uh, cousins of all these plants that, that are being developed. So um, and, and we're, we're really, you know, we're about for the Renaissance was, um, you know, when um, they started uh, to discover um, literature of the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans. And um, they, they and they were really just, they were shocked that these these people couldn't possibly have anything good to say because they weren't Christians. You know, um, the scholars of the of the medieval period were absolutely shocked when they ran across uh, Aristotle and Sophocles because these were non-Greeks. How could they possibly have any knowledge for us wonderful Christians? And they weren't Christians. And I think we sort of got the, a, 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 a parallel thing to going on now with psychedelics. And we're beginning to find out there, there are all kinds of other let's say, slight, slight changes in molecules that will make a big difference in how we react to them. And, and there's some more research now that it's just not a matter of, of chemicals in the brain plugging into other places in the brain, but they're now getting inside and working at how the chemicals are working inside the cells. It's not just the outside plug that's working. So, and uh, an interesting angle is that I, I, I'm a little annoyed by this, but I think they are actually on something. At uh, University of California Davis, they're looking at uh, chemicals that have um, growth effects on neurons, as as uh, psychedelics will, but do not provide the psychedelic experience. So they're promising, and I don't think it's going to work too well to develop drugs that will help the nerves grow, but will not provide people with psychedelic experience. I'm of the school that the that the subjective experience is the most important part of it. So there may be some drugs that work just on the ner nervous system and other drugs that work on because of psychological effects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is there anything else, as we're coming to towards the end of our time, is there anything else on the subject of end-of-life and psychedelics that you'd like to add into the mix at this time? Well, I, I would encourage people to get hold of the videos of... Um, Anthony Bossis, B-O-S-S-I-S. -S. Um, there are a bunch of very good videos there. One of the things I'm doing now is um, I'm going to um, a site called Academia where I can send messages to professors elsewhere, and I'm sending links um, to people who are in the palliative care business, the palliative care nurses and psychiatrists, asking them to look at, at Bossis' work. Um, this is the work that Charlie Grove started at UCAL Irvine. Yes. And picked up, you know, um, at NYU and elsewhere as the method that's being used. Yes. In fact, I interviewed and uh, Brian Anderson this week, who was one of Charlie Grove's students some years ago, and he's working with psilocybin. He, he did uh, uh, psilocybin treatment with AIDS patients and was the first one recently. They used uh, group therapy after the ex uh, psychedelic experience and he thinks that was a first which i'm very excited about because i think group therapy is going to have to happen thomas because individual therapy with psychedelics is simply too expensive yes 
No, not only that, but people have this uh, profound experience. They want to talk to other people about it. Yes. You know, and, and, and if they talk to most people, people think, oh, you've had a psychotic experience, you poor, poor old guy. Um, but you put them together and they can, it's sort of like AA, um, supporting each other. It's a support group. And they found this, well, there's a group now, um, Ligare, L-I-G-A-R-A, which is um, founded by a priest whose, fo- whose last name actually is priest, Hunt Priest, L-I-G-A-R-E. Ligare, it means link you know, in uh, Latin. And um, he's trying to develop uh, a Christian approach to the use of psychedelics. And this is a very good group to get, get in touch with. Okay. And for the rest of you, please be sure and go to Google, because we're talking about other people's work, but you really want to look at the work of Dr. Thomas Roberts, who's sitting right here. No question about it. Thomas, you know, there's a, a thing that I've been doing recently, and I'm going to do it with you, which is to say, that sometimes we leave an event or a meeting or a talk or something we've been at and we're in our automobile driving away and we have the thought, darn, I wish I would have said that. Yes. So I'm going to allow you to take a pause for as long as you want right now. Don't worry about filling the space and see if there's anything. If you were driving away, you'd say, gosh, I wish I would have said this to Richard while we were on the program. But just take your time about that. And while you're doing that, I'll put in a commercial. I'd like you all to go to mindbodyhealthandpolitics.org, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, and look at the archives. All the programs we've done are on the archives. I've done the longest-running series on psychedelic medicines that's ever been done on the air. I'm sure you'll enjoy that. And you can also take a look at this recent interview with Tony Bosis that uh, uh, Dr. Tom Roberts has been referring to. It's a really interesting interview. So, okay, Thomas, anything come to mind as you were driving away sitting here? Yes, and I'm sure I'm going to think of more in five minutes. But the main thing, I I hope people um, will try to use um, um, organizations that exist to have sessions and talking about psychedelics. For example, I'm in a a church men's group, so we meet meet for breakfast every Monday, and I'm trying to interest them in psychedelics. Um, because there's so much that could benefit churches. And, of course, the, the whole health area is, is developing enorm- enormously. Also, um, there's a, there are elder hostel groups, and I've taught several um, psychedelics courses in our local elder hostel groups and found them very well attended. And elder hostel are, are nice students. They're there because they're open-minded and they want to learn. And um, you can, you know, just offer courses. And I find there's an enormous amount of very good videos out there. Let me just give a, a clue is that if you search Harvard Divinity School videos, there's an excellent series of, video, of videos there. Also, another is um, Hefter Research Institute. Hefter is H-E-F-F-T-E-R Research Institute. And look at their videos. They have some long lectures, but they've interviewed a number of people who used psychedelic psychotherapy to overcome their fear of death. Basically, people with a stage four cancer and all, a few alcoholics. And they found that if they could have a mystical experience as part of psychedelics. By the way, when we're talking about therapy, we're always talking about psycho-assisted therapy. You don't take the drug yourself and go home and take it. You take it with um, professionals who have been taught how to handle it. Like, 
if you have your appendix out, you don't have to get your jackknife and take it out. You have a <laughs> surgeon take it out. Similarly, you should have professionals who have training. And there are a number now of universities who are starting training programs. Um, the best known is at Berkeley. There's California Institute of Integral Studies. Emory is, is starting one. NYU Hospital has one. And I think University of, Cal- University of Southern Southern Carolina University or something like that has them. So look at the, look around, and um, there are people who can give you responsible training in um, psychotherapy and how to become guides in them. So I hope people will and people will chase this down. I've been very pleased. There now is a group of over fifty professors who are now teaching psychedelics courses, and they are not primarily in the neurosciences, as one might think. They're either generally in the liberal arts, asking what does this say about the human mind or in nursing or psychotherapy. So this area is, is growing. It's a very good area to get into. I hope you have... Quite commercial. <laughs> I, good. I, that was great information for everybody. And I hope you have great satisfaction in having started the first psychedelic studies course in the United States. Major feather in your hat. Thank well, you. that's the end of our interview. Thomas, I don't know if there's time this winter because it's already February. But sometime when you're freezing your ass off in the Midwest there in the winter, come out and spend a long weekend or a Uh-oh. week with, come spend a week with me and Jolie here in California. We've got a great guest room. We'd love to have you. We'll take you to Wilbur Hot Springs and dunk you in the hot water, oh, and you'll have a great time, and we'll have wonderful conversations. <laughs> I never thought I would be like that, you being dunked in hot water. but. <laughs> It's it's a different kind of uh, it's a different kind of sacrament, but it we're has having, a lot of. We're having an ice storm now. Oh my gosh, yeah. we're having blue skies and sunny weather right oh, now. Boy. So thanks again for taking the time. I really appreciate your being here. Thanks for letting me talk about it. My favorite thing to talk about. We'll have you back for sure if you privilege us with your presence, and thank you, listeners, for being with us today on this edition of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. As you all know, we'll be back next week. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm